So I just wanted to start off by saying thanks again to everyone who gives so much of yourself to put all this together. So all the care and time and prayer and sincerity, it shows. There's a tangible sense of being a part of something bigger and lasting at this retreat. Whether you're dipping your toes into the water of Mason or you've been spreading the feast for decades, so much of the craft of home education happens in the quiet of a dining room or next to a trail or uh, on the couch as a read-along, read along, and it can seem like you're in this alone. And I want you to know that we believe that each of or and I know that we all believe that we're co-teachers with the Holy Spirit in the lives of our kids. And some days, even when we're intentional about reminding ourselves of that and relying on the truth, it can be lonely. So thank you for gathering the tribe in a way that a website or a podcast or even a book study might not provide. So thank you. If only for the sake of my family and the sanity of my wife, thank you. And fellow educators, some days it might feel like all you're bringing is a widow's coin offering, while all around you, everyone is parading their wealthy, shiny, with trumpets and parades and loud clinks in the coffer. Uh, And that's got its place. But Jesus seems to keep coming back again and again to the overlooked and to the easily dismissed. So reminds us that these are the things of the kingdom of heaven. And then one other quick, are you in the room? I know some of you go out, but to the students, I just want to say this afternoon, and I know we're all lifelong students, right? Lifelong learners, Jay, get it? No, I mean to the kids, but you can't call them kids, students. I just want to say to you, and you can pass along, or if you hear, I just want to say how cool it is that your folks, your mom, or both your mom and your dad, or however it plays out, are here. Because in real life, they could be anywhere right now, spending money and time on anything other than this. And have chosen to come to Gary, South Dakota, which is great, but it's Gary, South Dakota. It's not the golf course or... And they're intentionally learning to be better parents and educators. And yeah, we talk about how good this is for our soul and refreshing. But at the end of the day, even though, well, really, it's as Mason says, it's for the children's sake. And so I know that you probably have tension with your kids. And I know they might have some with you, but you are doing this for their sake. And that is a big grand thing. So, if there were a kid in the room, they're all out. This was going to be really... um, I'd say to the kids, you should be proud of your parents. Because I'm sure as parents, that's a thing you know, but doesn't get said to you often. And so, anyway. Ready? Here we go. So, in 1955, United Press article on Emma Grandma Gatewood, who was 67... She shares these thoughts. I read about this trail three years ago in a magazine, and the article told about the beautiful trail, how well marked it was, and it was cleared out, and there were shelters at the end of a good day's hike, and I thought it would be a nice lark. 
so this is at a point in her journey where she's nearing uh, her end in uh, this hike from Georgia to Maine. So this is, so we'll pause on that. She first laid eyes, uh, Montgomery writes, she first laid eyes on the trail in a doctor's office back home inside a discarded National Geographic, which is this, uh, not this one, I don't couldn't get hers, but this, <laughs> this edition uh, from August 1949. And the 19-page spread with color photographs was a window to another place. She had read that the soul-cheering, foot-tempting trail was as wide as a Mack truck and that food was easy to come by and that trailside shelters were plentiful and spaced within a day's walk from one another. And the Appalachian Trail, popularly the AT, is a public pathway that rates as one of the seven wonders of the outdoorsman's world. And the article gushed, over it you may hayfoot strawfoot from Mount Katahdin uh, with a view of Canada on the horizon to Mount Oglethorpe, which commands the distant lights of Atlanta. I thought it would be a nice lark, she says. And from that, the old woman was captivated. So in volume one of Charlotte Mason's writings, she says that which has become the dominant idea in one person's life, if it be launched suddenly at another, conveys no very great depth or weight of meaning to the second person. He wants to get at it by degrees to see the steps by which the other has traveled. So here's the idea that she's setting up right after this, if you haven't memorized the volumes. (laughs) It's that the formation of habits is education, and education is the formation of habits, which is such a great and important thing, and it's obviously a different talk for a different day. But don't miss what she's saying here, and I think it kind of goes along with a reoccurring conversation among Mason circles, and and it's an idea is launched suddenly at another. Don't be surprised if it doesn't carry the weight for them that it does for you. How many times have you been discouraged? We've all been there because we're sharing something that was incredibly moving to us, and it's just crickets on the other end, right? Just this happened and it was so amazing and it's just nothing. And we shouldn't be surprised by that because you didn't reach that place instantaneously. Oftentimes it was the gradual steps of getting there, Mason says. Which should be something we keep in mind when narrating the weekend to someone who has invested in us but wasn't here, right? No way to get them or get to them the full of how moved you were or inspired you were, how you came alive, folk dancing, or some other random thing that just caught you off guard. And from that extent, thank you for that was fun last night. That was so out of my comfort zone. We were all courageous together. And that's okay, so go slow and give it by degrees and show the steps that have been traveled. Now, the thing that jumps out at me, though, in this, is this idea of the dominant idea of one person's life. So hopefully there are dominant ideas in your life. That's kind of a silly, we all have them. There's no hopefully in it. We all have dominant ideas in our life. Hopefully, though, they're living ideas and not decomposing ideas. 
Nevertheless, an idea can and does have the ability to transfix and transform our life, and we can be captivated by an idea. So for Emma Gatewood, it was the idea of walking 2,050-mile Appalachian Trail from Georgia to Maine. She actually, I won't give it away, but the year before starts from Maine to Georgia and starts at Kentaden and gets into the 100-mile wilderness and, and gets lost and breaks her glasses and runs out of food. And they actually have to send, um, uh, they, they send folks out looking for, but it's this great line in her journal where she says, I looked around and I figured this was as good a place as any. Like, this is great. Here I am. And if I go, I go. I thought, what an incredible woman who could have planned differently. <laughs> right? <laughs> So 2,050 miles, Georgia to Maine. It's hard to even get my head around that number. So from Oshkosh, Wisconsin to Gary, South Dakota, according to Google Maps, 449 miles. It took us seven hours, 60 minutes, going super fast with, um, uh, and we would only have been a quarter of the trip that 67-year-old Emma walked after having seen one article in National Geographic that actually, if this was a different talk, would be classified as imaginary geography. It wasn't accurate that much. So now from talking with a few of you this weekend, I'm guessing that more than one in the room has had the idea of hitting the AT get stuck in your head. Not just a bucket list, but you daydream about spending five months sleeping on the ground in the woods. Anybody? Is that you? I knew it. There's at least a couple. Like, no, but now it is. <laughs> That's the um, non-idle challenge. That's the moving, and we'll read Mason along the way. <laughs> How's that sound? Okay, so Nancy, if you could work out the logistics of that for us, because I'm already distracted. So, okay, maybe that's not you, um, but I'm guessing at least one idea has captured you. What's the last idea that's captured you? Really? Are we going to do this screen? Is that how it's going to work? So, Okay. <clears throat> so what's the last idea that's captured your attention? Sabbath keeping. Very cool. Right. So ideas of wife as sanctuary and struggle of work. Yeah. A couple more. Cool. So communicating these, these great ideas through the lens and the way your husband can hear them. So those of you who brought uh, these nuggets to the banquet, to the feast this weekend, thank you. Hear those things. So the work put into that, um, yeah, it's worth it. So I'm not a betting guy, but I would be willing to put serious money that if I didn't have that word, what is the last idea that's captured you? But if I said, what is one of the biggest ideas that have captured you? More than one of you would have said homeschooling your kids. And probably out of that number, there would have been many that would have said a Charlotte Mason method, right? Safe bet. So Mason says this. The knowledge of God is the principal knowledge and the chief end of education. 
The knowledge of God is the principal knowledge and the chief end of education. She actually says it first in the preface to the volumes. Now, in my write-up, I said it's in all six of the volumes. Confession, it's not in all editions of all six of the volumes. I felt like a total newbie when I saw actually volume six that I have doesn't have this preface, but the one that I pulled it from did, so that was a new one to me. So we're all learning along the way, and none of you would have needed to know that, but it's always good (laughs) to not pretend we're anything other than we are. And I'm an amateur, so. But Mason sure wasn't. The knowledge of God is the principal knowledge and the chief end of education. That's a pretty big statement. And not only that, that's a big statement to put in your preface. Because who reads those? (laughs) Right? I mean, the introduction, maybe. But let's giddy up into the thing. And so, but there it is right in the preface. And so even if you hadn't finished any of the volumes, but you had given someone this, this is an idea that would have come across and perhaps captured a bit. I am saying that I believe this knowledge of God is the captivating idea our children need. So it's what we're soaking in. It's what we're going to take the rest of this time to work our way through. So Mason in volume two says this, the destiny of the child is ruled by the parents because they have the virgin soil all to themselves. The first sowing must be at their hands or at the hands of such as they choose to depute. What do parents sow? Ideas. We cannot soon, too soon recognize that is the sole educational seed in our hands and how this seed is to be distributed. (laughs) This is the whole reason for the need for living ideas. And we could go off and and chat that through, but that's probably not something we need to drill down too far on this afternoon. It's the ideas that bring life. It's the nourishment to the mind of the child. And we know that Mason tells us the duty of the parents is to sustain a child's inner life with ideas as they sustain his body with food. So our kids have to be captivated with the knowledge of God, which is why this is the chief end of education. Now, originally, I actually, in in putting thoughts together, uh, got into this whole uh, Mirkwood of a lost place in, like, here's what we do on a Sunday morning, and here's why we do what we do on a Sunday morning, and I recognize everyone in the room isn't at the same place, and we know that in a Sunday, and I and I know that here too. We're all not at the same place in the journey. For some of you, maybe the time best spent would be to take 45 minutes and talk about living ideas and what those actually mean. And um, and others of you, you could write the article on that. And and so we're all at just this little bit different in this. But we're not going to get stuck in that mess of where that all led writing. And actually, this morning, I thought, Art, you so fantastically unpacked that what we hope to see in our kids, we need to be able to see in ourselves. That was worth the price of admission for me. Because how many things do we say, this is, this is where, not this is who I want them to be, dentist or lawyer, but this is, this is the character I want to see in my son, honest and courageous and... And so, obviously, we're all here 
not just that our kids can get into college or have a good book list or a good job or a good spouse. I mean, those are all great secondary things, but those are not the essentials by any means, even though they can occupy so much of our headspace, so much of our time. And so Mason, again and again and again, draws us back to this place that, yes, all the rest of the knowledge, the knowledge of man, the knowledge of the universe, it's important, but it's secondary to the knowledge of God. And if you're going to, parents, instill that uh, to your kids, you're going to have them come alive to that, then that's got to be a captivating idea for you, too. And here's where it got into Mirkwood for me, because this is Mason in one section says that, I think it's actually in the preface, she says she's going to tread where angels fear to tread. In this, I'm a pastor. Talking about God shouldn't be that big a deal, right? I mean, it's my job. Get up, here's the text, here's what God's doing, here's maybe what he's doing in your life. Let's go forth in peace. Like, that's week after week after week. But when you strip it away this far, is the knowledge of God a captivating idea to me? Or is it just something, the widget that I'm working with right now? And I'll just be totally confessional. There are more seasons than I would like to admit that a sermon is a widget that I'm producing. And it's not always that way, I don't think. Boy, that guy. But there's not a one of us that doesn't have a time in our walk with the Lord where it doesn't feel a bit like widget producing and a little less like the living idea. And so when you find yourself in that place, this is off note, but and so may not get anywhere, but if you find yourself in that place, we talked about it in the couple's devotion thing. Brother Lawrence's The Practice of the Presence is so incredibly fantastic because it's theologically very thin but it's um, relationally very, very deep and thick and reminds us that, uh, that God meets us exactly where we are, draws us further up, deeper in the way Lewis says. And so anyway, if you're here right now and you're going, I don't know about all this stuff. Actually, algebra is pretty important right now in our house. Algebra only makes sense through the lens of the knowledge of God. So the main place we go to this is with Scripture. Scripture is the main place we go to soak in the knowledge of God. Mason in volume four says, There are several ways by which the knowledge of God first comes to us. We may be struck by the words, acts, and looks of those who know. It's a very convincing lesson. Uh, little plants of moss, the barrenness of a tree in winter may, as we have seen, awake us to the knowledge and the dealings of strange intimacy within our hearts, visitings of repentance and love, sweet answers to poor and selfish prayers, tokens of friendship that we can never tell, but the most surely perceive and are all steps of this chief knowledge. There's one bit in this. Actually, I think Mason would uh, argue with Pascal a bit when it comes to this because he had a little bit different ideas and I sometimes like to let uh, folks smarter than me argue with each other, put them in a little book pile and then see who wins. <laughs> and But Mason here talks about uh, this, uh, the barrenness of a tree in winter. This is where this comes from. Maybe you know the story. It's from the practice of the presence. It's the conversion of Brother Lawrence. Uh, writing about his conversion, um, one of in the conversation part in the beginning, says, The time I saw Brother Lawrence, 
Or the first time I saw Brother Lawrence was upon the 3rd of August, 1666. He told me that God had done him a singular favor in his conversion at the age of 18. That in the winter, seeing a tree stripped of its leaves and considering that within a little time, the leaves would be renewed. And after that, the flowers and fruit appear. He received a high view of the providence and power of God, which has never since been effaced from his soul. That this view had perfectly set him loose from the world and kindled in him such a love for God that he could not tell whether it had increased during the more than 40 years he had lived since. This reminded us, as Amy and I were talking this through, of this from Scalehow Meditations. Mason says, but perhaps we fail to realize that nature teems with teaching of things of God that every leaf on every tree is inscribed with the divine name, that the myriad sounds of summer are articulate voices, and all nature is symbolic or has been said is sacramental. Let that just resonate for a second. Realizing the close correspondence and interdependence between things natural and things spiritual, that God somewhere leaves him, that God nowhere leaves himself without a witness. And that every beauteous form is, and sweet sound is charged with teaching for us. And if we have eyes to see and ears to hear. So great. So I gave it away. I'm kind of into backpacking right now. We've talked about going outside and stuff. This is, anyone know this? Lake of the Clouds, Porcupine Mountains. Very good. This is... This is a, a place to find God or refind him. So uh, I read a book that inspired an idea, and my wife wouldn't let me do a trail of 2,050 miles. So I settled for three days, two nights solo hiking in the Porcupine Mountains. And this is day two up on the escarpment ridge looking onto Lake of the Clouds. That's the Carp River, little carp, big carp, one of the carp rivers. Um, and so just to prove that I was like doing, I was legit, I did this draw, nature journal drawing. Um, and so amateur hour. But it was just this like, this is amazing. This is so great. The kids aren't here, and I haven't seen any bears yet. And whatever, and so um, this is this is my campsite. Sorry for the resolution shift. If you squint, maybe it'll look right. But you can see the lake of the clouds in the background there. Jay, this is the most boring trip slideshow I've ever seen. Why are you doing this? He's like, yeah, just hold on. So this is on the escarpment. It's actually uh, the Niagara escarpment. It's the same geological escarpment that Niagara Falls is a part of. The Great Lakes Basin actually has collected its water because of the hard rock. Um, for and and so when the glaciers receded, the water stayed, and and uh, and the Great Lakes were there. And so this, uh, it's a it's a three hundred foot drop at the edge of the escarpment where I was doing my sketch there down to the valley floor. And um, I don't know, three hundred is too short. Bigger than that. Anyway, so uh, packed there, hung the food on the bear pole. 
and got ready to go to sleep that night, did everything I was supposed to do. The whole time I'm freaking out about bears because there's a sign right there, bears are unpredictable, is what every bear sign says. Like, okay, they're unpredictable. So if I'm predicting for them to do something wrong, do they know that? Should I leave my food in my tent because they're expecting it on the pole? I'll out-unpredict them. And so, that's silly. But uh, so anyway, we went to bed that night, and um, and in in the course of the night, the wind really, really, really picked up, really picked up. And so, leading into this, the kids and I have been watching all survival television. Jay, what do you do with your time? We watch Survivor Man and and Man vs. Wild because that's going to teach us how to really live. <clears throat> And so the wind picks up, and, and I had put in earplugs so that I could sleep because, you know, just it's loud, and I didn't want to hear if there was a bear around. And uh, and so I'm sleeping, and it's 2.30 in the morning, and, and the tent pushes against me. And it's just, it's just a one-man tent. It's just a little narrow tent. And I woke up. And the tent's pushing against me, and I'm like, oh, my goodness, there's a, it's really a bear. <laughs> and, you know, in a split second, you reconsider every decision you've made in life, and are they going to find me? And, uh, <laughs> and I took my earplugs out, and I realized that the wind had come up so strong, it was pushing my tent down. And so it's down the ridge, so, and there's just this little bit of brush, and my tent's, like, pushing way down. It bent the poles what? And I don't know. This is like first time solo backpacking. I'm trying to think of what would, what would Survivor Man do? (laughs) So, so survival mode. Okay. So I got out my little survival pack and I put in there everything I would need if my tent collapsed. And if it really went into trouble right away, I didn't know what kind of storm was coming up. I knew there weren't any dead limbs above me that could fall. You know, I had done that stuff, right? And so uh, did all that right, and then, well, what do I do next? Well, I need to put my shoes on. And so I, I literally got everything I needed and put it together. I, it took me an hour and a half while this storm's going because I didn't know what would happen. Of If this goes wrong, I'm going to have this ready so it'll go wrong. It was this great, like, I can do this moment. But it was super terrifying because I had never been in a situation like that, and I didn't know how it was going to play out or whatever else. And the whole time it was going on, in, in my mind was going the Bethel song, the wind and the waves still know his name. And, and it was like, here's this storm, but here is my God, and this wind knows his name still. And so I put the earplugs back in. I'd done everything I could do and just figured, well, if the tent collapses, it collapses, and I'll just roll under the scrum of the bush there because actually I found this really cool uh, uh beer bottle somebody had put a note into and capped it and rolled it under there. It was from 1991. I thought, that bottle's still there from 91. I can make it through the night hiding in there. (laughs) Jay, this is the weirdest. This doesn't have anything to do with Mason. Don't worry. (laughs) So so I put my earplugs back in and, and tried to go to sleep as best I could. And at some point in the night, the wind died down just a little bit, but not all the way. And before the sun came up, um, I I woke up again, and I took my earplugs out, and the wind was still going. But you know what I heard? I heard a robin. And and hearing that robin 
which I knew was a robin because we had paid attention to wildlife on a nature hikes. Hearing that robin, I went, if that robin can sing, we're going to be fine. And it was this moment where, would I have known that was a robin song without Mason? Probably, hopefully, the robin is the state bird of Michigan and Wisconsin, <laughs> if I couldn't recognize it. But there was an awareness and an expectation that God is going to speak. And none of that would have been there in the same way had there not been something else already laid down prior, some captivating idea that I serve a God who is in control of all of this, regardless of how it plays out. It's going to be just fine. If you have eyes to see and ears to hear, a Robin song can remind you of the hand of God. Pascal, though, says that uh, there's as much light given to be able to see, but there's also as much murkiness to be able to not see, whichever way you're already predisposed. Brother Lawrence says this, Let all our employment be to know God. The more one knows him, the more one desires to know him. And as the knowledge is commonly the measure of love, the deeper and more extensive our knowledge shall be, the greater will be our love. And if our love of God were great, we should love him equally in pains and pleasures. He wrote on page, or he wrote in a letter that three days later was bedridden and um, slipped into eternity. Should love him equally in pains and in pleasures. Mason says the Bible teaches the knowledge of God. But as the friend listens to the voice, pours over the written word of his friend, so the lover of God searches the Bible for the fuller knowledge he craves. It matters very little to him. Okay, this is the money part. It matters very little to him that one manuscript should be superimposed over another, that such and such passages should be ascribed to other authors than those whose names they bear, that not only the history, but the legends and the myths of the Jewish nation have found their way into the book, that science disproves here and history contradicts there. These things may be so and may not be so, He is willing and thankful that science and scholarship should do their work, that the laws of textual criticism should be applied, and at the same time, he sees a thousand reasons for caution and reserve in accepting the latest dicta of the critics. This would be a really great space if I had more time and was braver to talk about accidental and essential truth. Mason has some things to say about this. It actually is, um, in a nutshell, this. Mason says that in going to scripture, we need to be uh, intentional and careful and aware that some of the things in scripture are accidental truths and some of the things in scripture are essential truths. Now, I'm probably walking out onto some pretty thin ice. I don't know, but it's not my day job, so we're fine. You will not have your soul fed captivating idea. The principle knowledge of God is not found in accidental truths. Accidental truths are important and they move the story forward. But Mason very uh, delicately 
at the beginning end of textual criticism, actually, if you know church history, this is just dipping your toe into all of that. If this is like, what in the world is this, Jay? Where are you going with this? Textual criticism, it's looking at the manuscripts and seeing, uh, here's a great textual criticism. You've all heard uh, it's easier for a uh, uh, camel to get through the eye of a needle than a rich man to get into the kingdom of heaven. Jesus said it, right? And in textual criticism, goes, camel's a really weird uh, analogy there. And maybe you've heard a sermon on this before. This is one of my favorite debunks. And we go, well, and, and in my faith tradition, I've heard more than one message that talks about the, the, um, uh, the, the gate in Jerusalem that was so small that the camel had to get down onto his knees to get through it, the eye of the needle gate. Anyone ever heard a teaching on that? It's total myth. There is zero eye of the needle gate in Jerusalem city walls. But you know what? In uh, Aramaic, in, 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 or actually in the Greek, uh, the word camel is just one mark different than the word rope. And so maybe somewhere along the line, one of the scribes recopying a manuscript accidentally jotted a tittle wrong and we got camel instead of rope. Jay, that, oh my word, I, what? I am out. <laughs> <laughs> where's the accidental and where's the essential truth in that? The accidental truth is if it's a rope or it's a camel, who cares? The essential truth is what? It's pretty hard to get in. <laughs> right? And see, I'm not going to feed the soul of my kid. They're not going to come alive to the knowledge of God through an accidental truth, but an essential. Jay, what are, what are accidental truths? Things like how many men were killed by David's mighty men, whether it was really 30,000 or whether it was like 3,000, and then the campfire retelling of an oral tradition. What's the accidental truth? The actual number? What's the essential truth? That God delivered them using a very few amount of people? See, sometimes we fight about, actually, this is fun. Maybe I should cut some stuff out. We won't do the picture study. How <laughs> much time? We fight about things that are actually accidental truths, and I'm going to just go there. Can we stop talking about creation and evolution? Can we? Because your kids are going into a culture that this isn't even a conversation anymore. And if this becomes the fight point and the essential truth in their knowledge of God, as soon as somebody can give them a better answer, they're out. And it's not an essential truth. God created the heavens and the earth. Is this... um, John Walton, professor at uh, Wheaton University outside of Chicago, talks about this fantastically in his book, The Lost World of Genesis 1. Uh, There's another fantastic read on this. Uh, I forget the author, but it's called Seven Days That Changed the World. Uh, It talks about, look, this is the way the ancients read this stuff. This is the way they talked. And God never moves them scientifically forward. He meets them right where they are. So how did the ancient Mesopotamians who became 
came out of the Chaldeans, you know, Abraham. What was the world scientific view he had? Well, it looked a lot like this because those myths have been preserved. And so just because they're myths outside of the Christian tradition, don't get wigged out on that. We shouldn't be nervous or afraid that there's a Gilgamesh or a flood story outside of the Bible. If there's a flood, wouldn't there be more than one account? And wouldn't the essential truth not be how much flood there was, but that God rescued through it? And so, parents, listen, I, I am. some of you have shut me off right now, and that's okay. At the end of the day, my faith is orthodox, and my absolute essential truth is in Christ. And so I'll never fight about those things that I don't know, because Moses wasn't there. He was writing what was being revealed to him through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. So anyway, if this were Water City and it were Sunday... I'd say if this is a touch point for you, let's get coffee this week. Good news, we're not leaving after tonight. And so if you're around and you wanted to talk some of this stuff through, I would love to do this. But here's the thing, even that's not the essential truth. Mason rightly says it doesn't really matter that much if the texts are overlaid, if the Gospels are one source or multiple, if if this was really Paul who wrote this or someone else. If Job was a real person or Job is just a literary device that God uses. Oh man, Jay, stop. Seriously, stop. (laughs) Through it all, God reveals himself in his word and we shouldn't be afraid of that. We shouldn't by any means, but we also shouldn't read with modern lens and make it say something it hasn't ever said up to this point. It made sense then, before they knew the earth moved, even though it says the pillars are fixed and the sun starts here and it ends here. It's not untrue. It's just an accidental. What's the true? That God is legit. So, okay, man, that was free. I have, if time, go to these, and I did not have time. Eugene Peterson says this. It's not easy to convey a sense of wonder, let alone resurrection wonder, to another. If the very nature of wonder is to catch us off guard, to circumvent expectations and assumptions, wonder can't be packaged and it can't be worked up. It requires some some sense of being there and some sense of engagement. Pascal, though, says, everything that is incomprehensible does not cease to exist. I just love that really smart people have gone before us. Because it's so true. Dad, how did this happen? Like, who did Adam's sons marry? wasn't there. I'm not sure. We'll have to find that out. Grandma Gatewood goes on from that. I thought it was a nice lark. It wasn't. (laughs) So great. There were terrible blowdowns, burnt-over areas that were never remarked, gravel and sand washouts, weeds and brush to your neck. Most of the shelters were blown down, burned down, so filthy, I chose to sleep outdoors. This is no trail, it's a nightmare. (laughs) So great. Picture your spunky grandma. For some fool reason, they always lead you right up over the biggest rock to the top of the biggest mountain they can find and... 
I've seen every fire station between here and Georgia. Why any why an Indian would die laughing his head off if he saw those trails. I would never have started this trip if I had known how tough it was, but I couldn't and wouldn't quit. A captivating idea. Henry Nowen writes, I often wonder if my knowledge about God has become my greatest stumbling block to my knowledge of God. So I already went to the other place. Let's just really... Art, I loved what you shared. To be able to be transparent enough to say and to not just absorb that, but to share it. Because you've reminded us all that we're in this together. The... Whatever that was, it wasn't Mason. That's one thing if it's on Wordsworth or something. It's another one, it's the Bible. See, we need to be so in love with this. Now you might think, because I poked the box a little bit, that I... Scripture is the absolute utmost authority. It is the clearest place God is revealed. It is where we encounter Christ, who is the full divine revelation of the unknown, unseen. He says, you don't know my dad, but you know me, so just be okay with that. It's in scripture. But see, whether it was a camel or a rope, that doesn't do anything to God revealing himself to us in scripture. And we can never forget that when we're talking about this with our kids. Jay, why is accidental and essential truth so important? Because if we're not careful, it, it robs us of focusing on the thing that we are supposed to be focusing in on. We defend the wrong thing. We emphasize the wrong syllable. So, Jay, what do we do? How do we? Okay, Jay Patterson-Smiths are fantastic. His his writings that he has for kids, for the home, and for uh, Sunday schools, they're great. And they're in the public domain, and you can download them off of his website. Not his. It's not around. <laughs> but the cure, his family's got it going. Go through those. Not sure about this stuff. If I maybe poked a box for you or something on the Genesis 1 stuff, download his thing that he's got on Genesis and just read it to yourself. Do what Jen said about, I'm not even going to teach this yet. I'm just going to learn it myself and see what happens in there. So Jay Patterson Smith's one, good luck finding them in print. They're not easy, but they're digitally available. Um, a, a, a current one is John Walton. It's called the Bible Story Handbook. It's written, it takes 100 and I think 50 stories from scripture, big ones, and gives good historical context, good here's big themes, and here's some danger areas to stay away from in teaching this to a kid. It's for Sunday school teachers and parents. It's it's the Bible Story Handbook by John Walton. But I'm just going to let you know he's not safe. He's not safe, but he's completely Christ-honoring. And so, okay. I don't have time to do this. So I'm just going to pass them out. Oh, let's, don't look at these. Flip them over. We're doing a picture study, baby. <laughs> flip them over. Now, flip them over. Don't look. Or flip them over. That's the wrong one. That's when you're ready to look at it. Oh, amateur. Keep them face down. 
I apologize for the size of these. Nancy has a bigger budget than I do. I have had more fun with picture studies. I'm just telling you. I grew up going to the Detroit Institute of Arts. Detroit's not the awesomest place, but the DIA is amazing. There is work in there. I, as a kid, saw Van Gogh's and fell in love with Van Gogh before I even knew who he was. There are, and so picture studies, when we talk about what could I do to get my spouse involved in this, maybe it's picture studies because that may quicken something they don't ever know that's there. But we've done these Sunday morning. And not just cherry picking, we did the massacre of uh, some Old Testament judges story. I mean, it was ruthless. Horses were getting slaughtered. And people were looking at it like, I don't know about this. But the stuff that came out of that was so alive. So, okay, turn it over and study Turn it over. What did you see? Doubting Thomas. Thomas. I kind of broke the rules. I told you what it is and where it is and all that. So So that hand of Jesus holding his hand, drawing in the attention. Yeah. Who else? That's a really good question. Somebody Google that. I'm not sure. It's bigger than this, I know. The reason I asked is that I had difficulty reading the expression on mm. Right. What did you take it as? I, I don't know. Okay. Skeptical belief. I love this. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Did everybody, did you hear that back there? That's, so put his hand, Thomas put his hand on his own side right where Jesus is putting his hand into his, that this is painting me, that identifying of the wound of Christ and himself. I'm writing that down, that'll preach. Uh huh. To me, that means that like is like avoidance. Yeah. Like he's still not willing to, and that's the need for Jesus to bring the right. hand to the wound because he's like, no, I'm not really. Right. Yeah, a couple more. Three and a half by five. Three and a half by five feet. feet. 
That's a big one, right? Yeah. Uh, Caravaggio is known for his life. Yep. And uh, Jesus almost glows, and you can tell that by by his skin and, and his obviously dressed in white. And then um, another expression is the blood, the yep. blood and blood. So I'll I'll let you off the hook. Flip it over for a second, or go or or back. Flip it over. We use this painting Sunday, Easter Sunday, at Water City. Um, because the story needs to be told. And there's something about a captivating idea that is worth doing the work on our part and spending the time on and having the unknowns. So why why this one, Jay? I mean, really, this doesn't fit with where we're going to end. Actually, Peter would have been a better painting, and there's some good ones in there. In John chapter 20, we have the story of this. Now Thomas, also known as Didymus, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we've seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see the nail marks in in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, you'll never read that the same again, will you? I will not believe. A week later, the disciples were in a house again, and Thomas was with them. And though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. And then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here. See my hands. Reach out your hand and put it in my side. Stop doubting and believe. Thomas said to him, My Lord and my God. It's one of the clearest declarations of who Christ was in all of Scripture, and he's doubting Thomas. He carries a label unjustly. My Lord and my God. Then Jesus told him, Because you have seen me, you have believed, but blessed are those who have not seen and who have yet believed. Just let that one echo in the chambers for a little while. We're going to circle back to it. Why is this a big deal? What's this all about, Jay? It's very easy to paint Thomas as like this person that just has this doubt that needs this tactile, tangible faith. And that's one way to read his story. Another way to read his story is he was so all in before the crucifixion. Remember, Jesus says we're going to Jerusalem and it's going to be party, right? They're going to, everybody's going to come to me. I'm going to set up my kingdom. We're going to take over the joint. Not at all, right? We're heading to Jerusalem. They're going to execute me. Don't worry, three days, I'm going to be back. He didn't just say it once. He says it three times, which is significance that we don't have time to get into. Three times. Well, maybe once Thomas was like getting supplies for the night and he wasn't around. But three times, chances of him not hearing what was going to happen when they got into Jerusalem wasn't real high. But we've all heard things, and it doesn't connect with where we're at in the moment, even though what we're hearing is where we are going. But then when we find ourselves in that place in in despair or in anxiety or in mourning, are unable to access what we've heard. And so Thomas isn't there resurrection morning, is he? Where was he? I think he was processing. He just couldn't be around anyone else. 
not out of fear, not out of shame, not out of, he just, he just needed space. If you've ever lost someone, you know what it means to need space. For whatever reason, he's not there. But Thomas is the dude, before they get into Jerusalem, Jesus says, we're going here, they're going to execute us right around the Lazarus story. And what's he say? Hey, if we're going, if they're going to execute Jesus, then let them execute us too. I can't remember for sure if it's in the line, the witch in the wardrobe, but it's in the movie. Remember the scene at the end when the armies are coming and it's, it's King Peter and next to him is his, his, his main soldier, the centaur. Anyone remember this scene? This gives me chills every time. I've preached this like a hundred times. My church is so sick of this. <laughs> Peter turns to his compatriot and he says, are you with me? And his soldier turns to him and he says, you can picture it, to the death. To the death. And it's this moving and I'm like, I'm hoping my seven-year-old boy is hearing this because these are the things I want to come alive in him. To the death. This is honor. This is courage. That was Thomas. Jesus, let's head into Jerusalem. You're heading into Jerusalem. Okay, wherever you go, there's life. If you're going to die there, then we're going to die there too, to the death. To the death. And see, we've all had convictions, stirring, captivating ideas that somewhere along the line, even though they motivated us, maybe were something that we've let go or lost sight of. And that was Thomas. He was with Christ. He actually says, nobody else has the words of life. Where would we go? It's Thomas. And after it's all done, he just needs some space. And when Jesus shows up, the resurrected Savior, he doesn't scold him. I know some translations. I don't read that this way. I see nothing but love here, even in a rebuke, maybe. But do this. Peace be with you. And stop doubting and believe. And from that encounter, that experience with the risen Savior, comes his declaration, my Lord and my God. Mason says the knowledge of God is the captivating idea, but she ends volume four ourselves. The point of it all, she says, is to lead not just to the knowledge of God. She wants an encounter with the risen Christ. And so the captivating idea, the chief end of all education is the knowledge of God. But if my knowledge of God gets in the way of my knowing God, if my systematic theology puts God into this neat box that doesn't fit when I get this from the doctor that I never wanted to hear, if my explanation of the flood does this for my kids, and then I may give them some knowledge about God. But I want them to know God. And it's not semantics. Because I've stood in front of people on a Sunday and talked about God that I hadn't talked to God in longer than I'd like to admit. And see, there's something in that too. One writer says liturgy is important because we do what we know we believe even when we're having trouble believing it. And so there is a liturgy, there is, it's not fake or hypocritical. 
But Mason says this, God manifest in flesh, justified in the spirit, seen of the angels, preached unto the Gentiles, believed on in the world, received up into glory. She could preach. What a barren and dry land should we dwell in if our spirits were narrowed to the limits of that which we can comprehend. Where we err is in supposing that mystery is confined to our religion, that everything else is obvious and open to our understanding, whereas the great things of life, birth, death, hope, love, patriotism, why the leaf is green, why a bird is clothed in feathers, all such things as these are mysteries, and it is only as we can receive that which we cannot understand and can discern the truth of that which we cannot prove and can distinguish between a luminous mystery and a bewildering superstition that we are able to live the full life for which we were made. One thing we must hold fast, a clear conception of what is meant by Christianity. It is not being good or serving our fellows. Many who do not own the sovereignty of Christ are better than we who do. But the Christian is aware of Jesus as an ever-present Savior, at hand in all his dangers and necessities, of Christ as the King, whose he is and whom he serves, who rules his destinies and apportions his duties. It is a great thing to be owned. And Jesus Christ owns us. He is our chief, whom we delight to honor and serve. He is our savior who delivers us, our friend who cherishes us, our king who blesses us with his dominion. Christianity would only appear to be possible when there is a full recognition of the divinity of Christ. Let us cry with St. Augustine. Take my heart, for I cannot give it thee. Keep it, for I cannot keep it for thee. The end. That is literally how Mason closes ourselves, which I think is a pretty important book. On character development, on courage, on these aspects of what it means to be fully alive. Before this, she talks about the knowledge of God. She talks about knowing him through scripture, not fighting about accidentals not being wigged out if science says something and it actually might even be true, like happened around Galileo. Remember all that? We didn't get that one right. But none of us say it doesn't move. And none of us have an issue with still reading the text that were the proof text for why it doesn't move. Jay, what are you saying? Are you for or against this? Not the issue. Let's just find God. And see, that's why the knowledge of God is the supreme chief end of knowledge. Because if science is my supreme chief end, then it does come into conflict and it does make me unsettled on what it may or may not say about God. Why what my knowledge of myself? It's why those things are subordinate to the knowledge of God. Tolkien, and don't worry, it's not the Bilbo quote, said, the chief purpose of life for any of us is to increase according to our capacity, our knowledge of God, by all means we have, and to be moved by it to praise and thanks. That sounds pretty good.
So this is what I want to give my kids. Not just give it to them. Here it's in the box. I've bought this and now unwrap it and I hope it's good for you. When we lost Wendy last year, we brought all of the kids together before we went to my brother-in-law's house with his four kids. If you don't know our story, last year my sister-in-law, who is is close besides my wife as any other person, uh, uh, girl, I didn't have any sisters. Wendy was a sister to me. Died suddenly. And... um, we gathered our kids around, and we live 45 minutes away, and we have a kid. They have a kid this age. We do too. Boom, 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 all four, same. We do parties together. It was every, All aspects of our life were together. And dads, hear this. It wasn't me who God said this to. It was my wife revealed to her that we need to go in as peacemakers. And so she got impressed upon her to gather each one of the kids, even Ruby would have been three then. And and we lined them up and we took oil old school and we anointed them. And we said, you are an instrument of peace, an image bearer of God. And reminded them of who they were because of who God is. That is not theology. That is stick your hand in this hole rawness of life. Now, it doesn't have to be that raw for us to be in that place, but that is the thing we are trying to hand off to our kids to, for them to get, for them to see in us. And so we mourned in front of them, and we, but again and again and again, we said, God is still good. All of this is still true because they needed to see it in us so that they could know it's something they could carry. What is your captivating idea? If it's a systematic theology, the world has enough of that. How about we get captivated with the Jesus who meets us right where we're at in our doubt, in our weakness, in our addictions, in our failings, in our strengths, and are not quite sure about any of this Jesus stuff. Let's be real. He meets Thomas. He meets us. Tozer says, The Bible is not an end in itself, but a means to bring men to an intimate and satisfying knowledge of God, and they may enter into him, that they may delight in his presence, may taste and know the inner sweetness of the very God himself in the core and center of our hearts. I forget which talk it was, but somebody reminded us of the text, taste and see that he is good. Was that in the, this morning's Psalm 34? We don't fight about the recipe. We taste and see that he is good. The point is not the ingredients. The point is God invites us to taste him. Sweeter than any honey. Second Peter the apostle writing to a church in question, in turmoil, in persecution, says his divine power has given us everything we need for a godly life through your really good works. <laughs> through your having figured it all out, through your teaching Sunday school. No. Through your knowledge of him. 
who called us by his own glory and goodness. Through these, he has given us his very great and precious promises so that through them you may participate in the divine nature, having escaped the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. For this very reason, make every effort to add to your faith goodness and to goodness, knowledge. And to knowledge, self-control, and self-control, perseverance, and perseverance, godliness, and godliness, mutual affection, and mutual affection, love. For if you possess these qualities in increasing measure, they will keep you from being ineffective and unproductive in your knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. I think he was supposed to say there, in your living out the kingdom so everybody can become a Christian. Right? No. That you might be ineffective and unproductive in your knowledge of Christ. That sounds a lot like growing in the habits and the disciplines and the character of Christ. We're just about to land the plane. In book, in volume four, Mason says, We see that in desiring God, we have set before us a great aim, requiring all of our courage and constancy. Then the will rises, chooses, ranks itself steadfastly on the side of God. And though there may be many failings away and repentings after this one great act of will, yet we may venture to hope the soul has chosen its side for good and all. Yes. This is what I want my kids to soak in. I may not give them a very good catechesis. Wait, Jay, you? We may not do well with all of the stories. I could be wrong on this, that, or the next. But may they meet him with courage and constancy. Probably not even pronouncing that right, am I? It's big words. You know what that means? It means a faithfulness, a steadfastness, a not turning away, a constant that when all of the mess of life happens and the failings away and the repentings, that we may hope that the soul has chosen its side for good and all. I'm not going to get wigged out when my kids lose sight of the capturing idea because I think there's some truth in this. So Peter says to the church, as we as parents say to our kids this in the benediction, in the closing, in the... He says, so I will always remind you of these things, even though you know them and are firmly established in the truth you now have. I think it is right to refresh your memory as long as I live in the tent of this body, because I know that I will soon put it aside as our Lord Jesus has made clear to me. And I will make every effort to see that after my departure, you will always be able to remember these things. That's Peter to his flock. That's us as parents to our kids. May this be the thing that we hold on to. Not only are we being transformed, but this is the captivating idea that we are introducing our kids to, that life may come alive in them. And when they roll their eyes, because we're doing the narrative of the, really, Bethlehem again, Dad? Yes, you know this, 
But you need to be reminded in this because the incarnation is an absolute truth. It's an essential truth, even if it's a mystery. And I will make every effort to see that after I'm not here, kids, you will always be able to remember these things. Then Jesus told him, because you have seen me and have believed, or because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those breathing right now who have not seen and who have yet believed. I don't even know if this wraps this up well. But blessed are you for believing, even having not seen, that somewhere along the line in your story, you've been captured by a very living idea that maybe Jesus is who he says he is and that maybe that changes everything, that maybe God really does know your zip code and cares, that maybe, just maybe, you are a son, that you are a daughter, that maybe, just maybe, it's not about the widgets that you can do for the kingdom, but that you are absolutely puppy, silly, loved by the one who intentionally created you with all that you are gifted in, knowing all you would struggle with. And so as you sit, stand, walk with your kids, may you continue to be captured by the very real idea that God can be known. Not only can he, he chooses to make himself known to us. And so may you encounter the resurrected Jesus. May you encounter him on the road to Emmaus like those disciples who didn't get it until they were narrating it back to each other. Right? For real. Wait, wasn't our hearts strangely warmed when he was telling us these things on the road? Whoa. There's truth in this, and it's worth it. And so even if it feels like a widow's mite, like what you have to bring to the feast is like pretzels you picked up on the way, bring it. Bring it. One of the most beautiful things Mason wrote in this that I took away that wasn't going to make it in, but here you go. She says, if you only know one thing, give them that. Twain, tongue-in-cheek, says, it's not the stuff in the Bible I don't know that bothers me. It's the stuff I do know. Mason says, if you only know one thing, give them that. Let that be enough. And then when they're ready for the next thing, you'll have it. And then give them that. And so maybe your scope and sequence doesn't cover all of Scripture. You don't quite know. There's good stuff. Read the articles. That's not what I have to give you today. This is be captivated by the idea. Let it shape. Let it illuminate everything else. Don't be afraid in the places where it seems like moderns are saying things that the ancients wouldn't have. Be afraid. Take courage, heart. Go into those places. Because God's not afraid. He shaped all of this. It is his. And one day he's going to say, come back to me. Time's up. 
And then we will bask with a king in a kingdom that's not just an echo of what's to come, but a full-on reality, regardless of what your theology is. Know him, our risen Savior. The knowledge of God. So, let me pray. This is a lot. I don't get into any of that accidental or incidental, essential to rock your world or be troublesome. But just to remind us of the bigness of God and the things. In your going, whatever you take with you, trust that the Holy Spirit's going to give you exactly what you needed to take from this whole weekend. Whether it was rest or laughter or a new friendship, whether it was one living idea or a whole bucketful, trust that the Holy Spirit really is enough and really is going to work in your life. So on behalf of the team and everything else, thank you for coming and for sharing and for risking, for being honest, for praying, for crying, for giving what you've got. And as you are going back into the places you are being sown, may you go knowing that your Lord is with you, revealing truth right there. And there is not a thing that will happen tomorrow or the next day or a year from now that God isn't aware of and very strangely preparing you for. So trust, take heart, have courage, do not be afraid. Let's pray. Lord, thanks so much. Lord, thank you for the faithfulness of those who put so much into letting us come and just be. Lord, thank you for a setting where, in a very real way, we don't have to put up fronts or pretend we've got it all together. God, thank you for meeting us in our brokenness, for meeting us in our not-quite-sures, God, I pray that you, in a very real way, would be our captivating idea. God, that that would then lead to praise. and Lord, that we would encounter you. And so, God, I pray for my tribe here. As we go back to the places where we've come from, into the situations that are waiting for us, some of them amazing and some of them harder than we'd like to think about. God, I pray that you would give us exactly what we need. Lord, give us our daily bread. You've said you would. And so may we trust that that's going to be enough. Jesus, we love you even if we don't have you all the way figured out. You are enough. In your name we pray. Amen.